0: Let me invite you to turn to John chapter 3 this morning. John chapter 3. The rise of John the Baptist has been short-lived. He came with a message and a peculiar lifestyle and attracted a huge following. The following was so large that the Jewish religious leaders started to take notice. But what they didn't know and... What many of John the Baptist's followers apparently didn't understand was that John was not doing this for himself. He was not trying to gain followers for himself. He was only a pointer to the Messiah. He was a herald for the coming king. And the nature of serving God is that we can easily lose focus about who our ministry is all about. And so I think we would do well to learn from John the Baptist in this text today. John the Baptist humbly recognizes his role as inferior to Jesus. And I say he recognizes it humbly because humility means that a person sees himself in the proper light. He sees God for who he is as the exalted creator, sovereign ruler, and he sees himself for who he is. Sinful uh, human being created by God in need of his grace. That's what John That's how John sees himself, as a servant of God. Not as a competitor, as if I'm going to gain my following over here, but but as, as a servant. Follow along in your Bible as I read, beginning in verse 22, and I'll read to the end of the chapter. This is the word of God. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. John also was baptizing in Anon near Salem because there was much water there. And people were coming and were being baptized for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Therefore, there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with the Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase. But I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard, of that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. John the Baptist has this apparent contradiction or apparent competition that seems to be coming up and his disciples are saying, listen, or, or one of the Jews comes up to him and says, this right? That he's actually gaining more of a follower following than you? I mean, you're the one who baptized him. So why is Jesus getting all of the, of the attention? And what we need to see here in this text is that Jesus is our superior, not our competitor. We're not trying to, to use Jesus as a way to get competitors or to misuse him. That is, distance ourselves from him so that we can be better than him. We are his servants. He is our superior. We're not competing with Him. And that's what John recognizes. This is not about me building my own personal empire. This is about me telling a message about the Savior of the world. We'll see that here in this text. So here, um, we begin in verses 22-30 through with John the Baptist's words and his conversation with this Jew. The proper recognition of roles. The proper proper recognition of roles. And there's an apparent competition competition going on between Jesus and John the Baptist. And and we need to keep in mind that John the Baptist was on the scene first. Right? He's older than Jesus and he he was on the scene first. So turn back to chapter 1 verse 22. And these people are coming to him after they start to notice that he's he's gaining a crowd. The Jews come to him in verse 22 and they say, Who are you so that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. So here, John is already on the scene. Jesus is older now, but but uh, he's 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 a uh, he's a uh, probably in his early 30s now. But John is older than him, and he's been on the scene first. He's the one that comes ahead of the king to announce that the king is coming. And John recognizes his role from the very beginning. My job is not one to gain a following for myself. My job is to to call people out, call them to repentance, call them to follow after Jesus and repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. And so John is gaining this following from the Jewish perspective. They're thinking, this doesn't make sense. You were here first, and now he's taking over all the attention. Notice back in our text in chapter 3, the location of Jesus baptizing. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea and they were spending time there and and baptizing. So Jesus came into the land of Judea. So he was in Jerusalem. He comes into the outer region of the Judean territory. So it would be like you know, someone said, I'm in Detroit, but I'm going into the outer reaches of the southeast Michigan. That's kind of the idea here. He's not going to a different region of Israel. He's still in the same region, but he's going into the outskirts, um, not in the city. And then um, we have this uh, this note at the, this note at the end of verse 22 that he was spending time with them and baptizing. But if we look at the rest of Scripture, we see in chapter 4, verse 2, that it was actually not Jesus doing the baptizing; he was overseeing the baptizing. He was he was in charge of it, but his disciples were the ones who were actually baptizing. And notice in verse 23 that once Jesus comes onto the scene and his disciples start baptizing. John the Baptist doesn't stop. Verse 23 says John also was baptizing. So that's why you have this apparent competition. Jesus and his disciples are baptizing. John the Baptist is still baptizing. And so from the Jews' perspective and their kind of their worldly mindset, like who's going to build the bigger crowd? And this provides the, the conflict for us in the story. In verse 24 we have a historical time marker. That puts this event before Mark six seventeen. So So if you understand what happened there, John the Baptist is thrown in prison. He would later be killed by Herod. Um, this is before that happened. In verse 25, we see the, the catalyst for this thought of competition. It says, Therefore there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. So they're talking to a Jew, probably a, a religious leader, and they're talking about this this purification idea, and this leads them to consider that Jesus and John are at odds with each other. Verse 26. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptized and all are coming to him. This is John's disciples now that they've kind of gotten the bug from this religious leader. Like, we need to go back and tell John, yeah, that's not right. Jesus should not be baptizing. In other words, it doesn't make sense that the one that you proclaimed would actually surpass you. And there seems to be in the, the mouths of the disciples of John a tone of frustration. They're continued about John's viability. You know, we are loyal to you, John, and how is your ministry going to continue if Jesus takes over? Eventually, John's ministry would have to be snuffed out. And the reason that we, that I think that they are frustrated, that they are have this kind of tone of of um, frustration is because of John's response to them in verses 27-30. to and, and John's response is one of, hey, settle down. It's okay. He's doing exactly what he's supposed to do. I'm doing exactly what I'm supposed to do. And before we condemn John the Baptist's servants, we should, or, or his disciples, I should say, we should consider the position of John the Baptist. His ministry was nothing to sneeze at. I mean, he was the... The last and the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. Turn to Luke chapter 7, and I'll show you this. He is the last and the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. Luke chapter 7. Jesus is talking uh, to the crowds. Here, and uh, verse 28, Jesus says, I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Here he's talking about John the Baptist. We know that because of verse 27. It points back to that same heralding responsibility that he had and that John had quoted about himself. It comes from Malachi. So he says, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John the Baptist. If you consider all the great Old Testament prophets, there were none that were greater than John. He is the one who who was prophesied in Malachi, about whom was prophesied in Malachi 3.1. He was the one who would actually prepare the way for the Lord. And the reason that John the Baptist is superlatively better than all the other Old Testament prophets is because all of them only announced the coming of the king from a distance they didn't know who He was. Do you remember John when Jesus came and the Spirit informed Him who He was? What did John say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How much would the Old Testament prophets, how much would they have loved to have met the Messiah and have announced His coming in person? I mean, it would have been amazing if you just consider the Old Testament prophets, Moses or Elijah, to see the mighty works that they had, had, had experienced and, and, and been a part of, to have God speak directly to them. But any of those prophets, the, the greatest of the Old Testament prophets would have given anything. They would have traded all of those experiences for one day in John's sandals. Why? Because John was the forerunner of the Messiah. He was the one who actually had got to announce and to meet the king. And despite John's exalted position in the great line of prophets throughout history, John recognizes his place. He is the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, and yet he recognizes his place. Look at verse 27 of our text. John 3. Back to John 3, verse 27. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. So John acknowledges that all human authority is delegated authority. No one can just advance on their own and determine where they want to be. God is the one who raises up some and tears down others, doesn't he? Whether they be good or evil, God is behind it all. And John is saying, listen, I would not be in this position if it were not for God. This is of heaven. Remember what Jesus told Pilate in, 19, in John 1911? Pilate asked if Jesus was the king of the Jews, and Jesus didn't respond. And Pilate rebuked Jesus for his non-answer, saying, "Don't you know that I have authority to release you or to, to keep you?" And how did Jesus respond? He said, "You would have no authority if I had not given if it had not been granted to you from the Father." All the authority that you have, Pilate. Even you holding me in custody has been given to you by the Father in heaven. And John seems to be applying this same kind of idea to himself in order to answer his followers. Listen, don't question whether this authority is from God or whether this is something that's a bad thing that's happening. I've been given my authority to speak on behalf of Christ, and this is a gift from God, and I gladly do God's work in proclaiming Christ. In verse 28, John reminds his disciples of his place and purpose. He says, you yourselves are my witnesses that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. So don't you remember what I said when I began my ministry? I am not the Christ. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet from Deuteronomy 18. I'm not him. I am the one who prepares the way of the Lord. In verse 29, John supports his position of inferiority with an illustration. John sees himself as the best man to the wedding. You see, the best man is at the wedding, but he's not the center of attention. The groom and the bride get the attention. But the best man is not disappointed by that, is he? No, he actually takes joy in that. Look at the end of verse 29. So this joy of mine has been full. So he's saying, listen, the bride... the The bridegroom has come. And I'm the friend of the bridegroom. And I'm happy for him. And so now that he's here, you know, their question is, wait a second, he's baptizing, you're baptizing. That's great. The wedding supper is about to begin. This joy has been made full. What a great privilege for me, John is saying, to introduce the bridegroom and to be his friend. He gladly recognizes his place in God's program. And so how does John apply this to himself and to his disciples? In verse 30, John applies this uh, this idea of this joy that, that he is inferior to Jesus and he must take his rightful position by saying, he, Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. The implication... For John's disciples is that they too must see their role in God's program. And they must recognize that they're not at the center of what God is doing. Jesus is. And they better step aside and let God be glorified. Let Jesus be glorified. He is at the center. We are his servants. So can I say to you that whenever you start to get that feeling of pride, exaltation, superiority, as if the work of ministry is all about you, that you need to remember the example of John, and I need to remember the example of John. We need to recognize our proper role as humble servants and pointers to Christ. Now we're not the same as John. We don't Malachi three one was not about us. But we we have that same kind of heralding responsibility, don't we? To proclaim Christ, the King. Listen, the King is coming. He's coming in judgment this time. When he comes the second time, he's coming in judgment. So, you need to be ready. You need to repent and believe. We are those kinds of heralds. We need to take responsibility. And, and too often and so sadly in our culture, we have had this celebrity pastor type of mindset and celebrity type of uh, mindset within churches that if I can just exalt myself to the highest position, I get more money and more fame. More people will follow me. And they've missed the point, haven't they? It's not about them, it's not about us, it's about Jesus. We serve Him. We are inferior to Him. He must increase. We must decrease. The confirmation of Jesus' superiority is seen in verses 31 to 35 and then an application in verse 36. Now, last week when we looked at this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, I suggested that verses 16 through 21, although read if you have a red-letter Bible. Although red, seeming to indicate that they were Jesus' words. I w- argued that those are actually the words of John the Apostle, that John is actually now coming on the other side of Jesus' words to Nicodemus, and he's giving details after some 60 years after Jesus had died. And he, he's adding some, some, uh, some commentary to that conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. And I would suggest to you that in this passage the same thing is going on. Now, if you have a new American standard, you'll notice that in verse 31, the quotation marks continue, which suggests that John the Baptist is continuing his speech. John the Baptist is still talking to his disciples, and that goes all the way to the end of verse 36. You see the closed quotation mark. But I would suggest to you that those quotation marks are, well, I, I can guarantee you for a fact, those are not inspired. Okay, so now we have to determine um, that whether that was the words of John the Baptist or the words of John the writer, John the Apostle. And uh, I'm I'm suggesting that this is John the Apostle's words, that he is saying, listen, this message that John is giving to his disciples is, is a right and proper message. And now I'm going to give you commentary on what that looks like some 60 years later, now that I'm writing this gospel, and I'm going to apply that to all of us. Remember John's point. In writing the gospel was to show the signs that Jesus had done so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing we would have life through his name. And so here he's saying, Listen, let's take this idea of Jesus being the superior and we being his his servants and see what that looks like with regard to our relationship to God. Alright, and so here John gives us five proofs that Jesus is superior to his servants. 5 proofs that Jesus is superior to his servants. Number 1, Jesus is superior because he has the authority of heaven. Verse 31. Jesus is superior because he has the authority of heaven. John, the apostle and John the Baptist can point to Jesus, but they can't speak like Jesus can with the authority of heaven. They can't speak about God's will like Jesus can because Jesus came from heaven. Verse 31, he who comes from heaven is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. So the apostle is saying, listen, Jesus is superior because he has the authority of heaven. Do you remember what Jesus told Nicodemus in verse 13? Look back up to verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So no one's gone up into heaven, gotten a report, Oh, this is what God wants. This is God's will. I'm going to come back down. No one's ever done that. But Jesus has come from heaven. He's existed there eternally, and he's come down now with the authority of God. He speaks on behalf of the Father. And so he is superior. Along with this idea of authority is that Jesus is superior because he knows all things firsthand. Verse 32. He knows all things firsthand. He doesn't have to be uh, trained in these things, right? He doesn't have to learn what he has seen. Verse 32 reads, What he has seen and heard, of that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. So again, you have this idea that they're rejecting him at the end of the verse. But, but the point is that Christ has eternal knowledge because he, has, he is God. He is from heaven. He doesn't obtain knowledge or need training. He is all-wise. He is wisdom. He doesn't gain wisdom. He is God and therefore can speak authoritatively, and yet still people reject him. Number three, Jesus is superior because his mind is consistent with God's. Verse 33 He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. So the one who has received the testimony can testify that God is true. He is unified with God's mind, he is perfectly consistent with God in his thinking. He never opposes God, he is always in submission to the will of the Father. And so his words have authority. He is superior. In John 5, the Jews are, are ready to kill him because Jesus was claiming to come from God. But why don't we turn there real quick. Verse, chapter 5, verse 19. And you notice the unity that God, that Jesus has with his Father. Therefore, Jesus responded to the Jews. Saying, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. And then skip down to verse 30. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will but the will of Him who sent me. If I only, if I alone testify about myself, well, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies of me, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. And he goes on to talk about the witness of John. And then verse 37, And the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor have seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. And he goes on to to talk about the fact that he is consistent with the Father because he is God. He is sent from God. He's the Son of God. Jesus is superior because He has the authority of heaven, because He knows all things firsthand, because His mind is consistent with God's. And then number four, Jesus is superior because He has the Spirit without limit. Here's further evidence that Jesus' superiority and authority is seen here in this verse. For He whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for He gives the Spirit without measure. So how is it that Jesus speaks these words of God? Well, one of the clear... Um, one of the clear things that is working through Jesus is that He has the Spirit without measure. Now, in the Old Testament, it's not that the people of God were without the Spirit. In fact, especially the theocratic leaders, they would have the Spirit come upon them in power and they'd be able to lead and administer the way that God wanted them to on behalf of His nation. They would receive occasional visions from God, occasionally, and, and occasional, occasional empowerments, manifestations of the Spirit's power, But Jesus surpasses them all because the Spirit is on Him without limit. That from the time of conception, the Spirit of God was upon Him. And so He is superior to all in authority. There is none like Him. Fifth proof that Jesus is superior is because He has the authority of God the Father. Verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand he has the authority of god the father the authority of jesus is not self-derived it comes from the father and it is supreme remember verse 31 he who comes from above is above all and god's greatest love is poured out on his son and the father has supreme trust in his son therefore all authority has been given to him isn't that what jesus said before he ascended into heaven Matthew twenty-eight eighteen, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, and now I tell you, go. Daniel 7 teaches us that the Son of Man received the keys of the kingdom from the ancient of days, and therefore He lives on this earth as a rightful ruler over all. He is the one to whom we should look. He is the one we must bend the knee to. And the point of all this, from the pen of John the Apostle, in verses 31-35, to 35, is that John the Baptist was right. He is not the Christ. He is a herald to the Christ. He is a pointer. And therefore, Christ must increase. Jesus is superior, divine, authoritative, independent, and worthy of our praise. And John must decrease. John is earthly, finite, dependent. And someone who only does his duty. What does all this talk about Jesus and His superiority have to do with us? The answer is in verse 36. The intended response by us in verse 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So here, John the Apostle saying, here's what all this means for you, the reader. In contrast to those who reject His testimony... Right, he came into his own, and they did not receive him. Or as Jesus said to, to Nicodemus, "Listen, I've come to you, and you did not receive my testimony." In contrast to all of them, we must respond with the obedience of faith. And so, this truth about Jesus and who he is demands a response by us. Are we going to believe? Or are we going to reject? Are we going to obey? Or are we going to disobey? see, we are under the wrath of God from the beginning of our existence. And the the fact is is that we don't come to a point where we put our faith in Jesus Christ alone. And look at what happens to us at the end of verse 36. The wrath of God abides on Him. Those who disobey the Son, those who disbelieve the Son, those who reject the Son, the wrath of God stays on them. It was already on them because we were born sinners. so there are only two choices. We either believe the Son or we disobey the Son. The reason I'm using believe and obey as synonymous is because the text does. Notice in the text here. He who believes in the Son has eternal life and then we would expect but he who does not believe the Son will not see life. But that's not what he says. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life. So he could have used he who obeys the Son and he who does not obey and leave it parallel like that. Or he could have said He who believes in the Son and he who does not believe in the Son. And that would have been parallel. But instead he said, he who believes and he who does not obey. And what we learned there is that to obey the Son is to believe in the Son. How is it that we come to put our faith in Jesus? Well, we obey His commands. And what's the most basic, the most um, fundamental, elementary command that we must obey? It is to repent and believe. We believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that He can conquer sin and death, that He can take it from us. And so we must obey. So, by way of application, I say to you, non-Christians, if you come here today, the command for you is to repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ in a very real way we can describe the obstinacy of an unbeliever as unbelief. But we can also describe the obstinacy of an unbeliever as disobedience. You see, the call of the gospel is not an optional choice that every person needs to make. The call of the gospel is a command to believe. There is nowhere in the scripture where the gospel, as far as I know, is ever mentioned as an option. Do you want to trust Jesus as your Savior? Do you want to add Jesus to your life? It's never mentioned like that. It's never asked in the form of a question. Instead, it's always given as a command, isn't it? You are under the wrath of God. You have defied God with your sin. You have spurned His love and mercy. You have turned from His loving hand of creation and provision. You are under the wrath of God, and so stop running from God and call on the name of the Lord. Repent. Believe. Turn from your sins. Trust in Jesus as the only means of your salvation. If today you hear the voice of God, do not harden your heart once again. Turn to Jesus and be saved. Believe in the Son. Obey the Son. And find refuge from the most terrible destruction that will ever fall on any person, the wrath of God. Turn to Jesus and receive eternal life. Repent. And believe. That's what I say to you, non Christian, today. It is a command. For you to reject that command is for you to disobey, for you to reject the only hope that you have of salvation. So come and be saved. For Christians, follow the example of John the Baptist and don't be a glory hog. How easy is it for us to lose sight of our role in the work of God? where we can get to a point where we subtly shift from working for God and advancing His purposes to working for ourselves and advancing our purposes and our fame. We must never let our love for our position or our desire for recognition or our validation that we think we need to surpass our love for Jesus must never come to a place where our ministry is about us. And we must never buy into the celebrity ministry type models, right, that, that exalts a, a human being over the God-man, Jesus. We must not, never let our love for our human teacher surpass, surpass our love for Jesus because He is the one that we're following, right? We're not following an individual, I mean, we are in a sense, because Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. But you know what? If God takes that person out of the way and puts someone else there, it's okay, because we're all still following Christ, right? The disciples of John were so devoted to John that they missed the point of his message. It wasn't about John the Baptist. It was about Jesus. And too often we huddle underneath Good and maybe even godly teachers, and and turn them into our own personal celebrity creatures. And instead of wanting to be like the Jesus that they point us to, we want to be like them. And we need to recognize where our focus has to be it has to be on Jesus. He is sent from God, He has the fullest measure of the Holy Spirit. And only Jesus has come from heaven and speaks with the authority of heaven. He must increase. (coughs) And I must decrease. Father, what a great treasure it is. To be called your servants. We are so thankful that we are on your side by virtue of Jesus' finished work. And Father, we look to you for grace. We don't know the end from the beginning. We know the final pages. We've read them in Revelation. But we don't, don't know how we're all going to get there. We don't know our individual stories. And so we look to you for grace. Would you be our shepherd today? Would you show us our need to turn in faith and repentance to You and continually be trusting in You alone. Give us grace to follow, Father. We thank You that our Savior is sufficient. Help us now as we sing to, to reflect on these words in Jesus' name. Amen.